say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Glad you could join me. Great to have you, and thank you for staying subscribed. Sean Francis Peters is back with me today. He is an instructor at the Center of Educational Opportunity at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. If you listen to Minnesota's Most Notorious, you may remember our conversation about the notorious killer Harry Hayward. His new book is called When Bad Men Combine, The Star Root Scandal in the Twilight of Gilded Age Politics. So nice to talk with you again. It's great to be back. And I'm happy. Um, I'm happy to be back and uh, talking about some interesting stuff from roughly the same period as that previous book that you, you mentioned, the Hayward book. Yeah, yeah. I, I love everything Gilded Age. So this is great. Uh, so this was an enormous scandal in the 1870s and 80s, but as you write in your book, not something well known today. Not at all. And I, you know, every time you write a book, there's a journey in picking a topic, at least for me, where I kind of, I think about the things that I like and the things I want to write about and what's going to stimulate me as a writer and also just what I think other people are going to be interested in. And I'm always someone who all of my books, I, I really want to be kind of the only game in town. I don't want to write. I, I, there's some statistic out there about like biographies of Lincoln and there are like 15,000 biographies of Lincoln. I don't want to be the 15,000 and first when I do stuff, it just doesn't, it doesn't move me at all. So I, as you mentioned that I had done this Hayward book, that basically is uh, early 1890s. And I really got into the Gilded Age in the late 19th century. And I like crime. I like law. I think it's it's something that interests me and engages me. And also just as an historian, it's really good because there's always raw material. You know, there's trial transcripts and things in the news. And so I was looking around and this, the Starwood scandal pops up in various like histories of 
uh, like the Republican Party after Reconstruction and biographies of Garfield and Arthur. And I, I saw it and I was like, I really like political corruption. This seems like a political corruption scandal. I like crime. I like this era. But who knows if there are seven books on this, I'm not going to write the eighth book. It's just not my jam. And I, to much to my surprise, I'm really no one had written. There's never been a book about it. And the latest thing that had been written, the thing that's still like the standard thing that gets cited is a, it's an article from the Mississippi Valley Historical Quarterly, I think from 19. 38 was the most recent thing. It was like 80 years ago. Like, wow, this is, no one has done this. This is kind of my thing. But at the time, so, and that gives you pause, right? You might look at that and think, well, okay, maybe there's a reason no one has written a book about this is because it's just like not a good story or no one will care or it's too complicated. And so that it was, uh, I, I chose to look at it as like a glass half full situation, but the glass half empty is just, yeah, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's a reason why no one has written about this before. At the time, the scandal in the uh, 1870s and early 1880s, this was front page news. It preoccupied multiple presidential administrations and embroiled numerous members of Congress. There were congressional investigations. It was a really big thing at the time. And for a variety of reasons, it's just has kind of fallen between the cracks of history. And I kind of, I like stuff like that. I wanted to kind of resurrect the story. Yeah, make, makes sense. Yeah. So let's start with the U.S. Postal Service, which is at the heart of the scandal. It grew dramatically in the 19th century as people moved west, of course, and faced some monumental challenges along the way, as would be expected. Would you talk about the Postal Service, how it changed, and how certain people were able to take advantage of those changes for personal financial gain? Sure. So, I mean, we look at the Postal Service now, and it's kind of a, it's the butt of a lot of jokes. We make fun of it. But in the 19th century, it was a really important part of America's territorial expansion and economic growth. You know, the, um, the United States acquired territory from Mexico and various other means um, above board and not above board. And so the delivery of the mail became hugely important to settlements, especially in the West and Southwest and the Plains, where it was the way they were connected. Those, those places were kind of connected to the outside world. This is, you know, rail networks are starting, but not everywhere, every, not everywhere is connected by rail. So if you were living in a mining camp in Colorado and things like that just kind of popped up overnight, there would be, it would be a wide spot in the road one day and there'd be 5,000 people there the next week. People needed to communicate and they needed to conduct business and the, and the post office really was front and center for that. And again, like, and, and people could communicate by telegraph at, at a certain point too, but not everywhere had, had telegraphic systems that worked very well. And so the post office did its best to deal with this and it couldn't really deliver the mail by itself. It just wasn't big enough and it just didn't have enough employees and it needed to be kind of flexible 
also. And so there was a huge amount of basically subcontracting. Um, the Postal Service would say, okay, we know that we want to run a mail route between um, Mitchell, Oregon, and Fort McDermott, Nevada, which is like just over the border between uh, Oregon and Nevada. And they would, uh, it was rugged terrain and the post office isn't going to like have its, dispatch its employees out there, but they'll advertise a postal route. And these were these star routes that were, they were called star routes uh, because in postal literature, they were denoted by a star and the points on the star were meant to uh, signify certainty, celerity, and celerity just meaning speed and security. So they would put out bids and they would say, okay, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to make some money, um, how about delivering the mail between two points out in the West, in the middle of nowhere? And it on paper seems like a good way to do things, but in practice, it was really ripe for corruption. And these um, star routes were really front and center for just a massive widespread corruption, kind of multiple (laughs) corruption schemes. There were lots of these rings or combinations of subcontractors who figured out the way contracting worked was that the lowest bidder would get the contract. So you would, if this route between Mitchell and Fort McDermott, you would low bid that route. You would just put in a route saying, yeah, I'm going to deliver the mail for dirt cheap for a a particular number of times per week at a particular speed with a certain number of men and animals involved and voila, you would get, you would get your contract. Um, And the fraud, that wasn't the fraud. The fraud happened with the adjustment of those contracts. I would, if I were a, in one of these combinations or rings, I would low bid, I would get the contract as the low bidder. And then I would go back to the post office immediately and say, you know what? Actually, uh, I think I need more money for this route. It's going to be more, uh, it's going to cost more money. I didn't realize that the terrain was so bad or that it, I had to fight off Native American populations or whatever. So if you had a friend in the post office, your friend could adjust the contract upwards for you. And obviously this friend of yours would be part of this scheme and the contracts always would get adjusted upwards. And sometimes for like ridiculous amounts of money, you, so you could conceivably get $20,000 a year to deliver, you know, $5 worth of mail per year. And these operators within the post office would then get a kickback from the increase. And there was, it was usually 20, 20 or 30% of the increase would then come back to the operator in the post office who had adjusted the contract. And so it was incredibly widespread. It was, everybody knew that it was happening. Uh, it was like the worst kept secret in Washington in the 1870s that this fraud was happening. And Congress looked into it at various times. There were multiple congressional investigations, and it it always seemed like there was a, like a lack of political will because both 
Republicans and Democrats were involved. The, the fraud was so right, widespread that it was not limited to one party. And so neither party had the will really to look into it very seriously. Right. Uh, th- there's an example in your book. One of these low bidders was shocked when dozens of his low bids were actually accepted. He didn't expect it at all and was very much unprepared for the work. Uh, he, he couldn't even figure out how to begin. Right. In that the the main ring or combination that I write about in the book. So I in writing the book, I kind of had to just narrow it down a little bit. And this is why no one had re- really written a book about this before, is that there are just so many. If you wanted to write about every fraudulent star route, it would the book would be 12,000 pages long. It was just like too many. And I said, well, what's the main event? Like, what was the, the, if you had to pick just sort of one group, it was this Dorsey combination involving a, for a kind of a carpetbagger senator from Arkansas named Stephen Dorsey. And yeah, so they're a member of his ring. I think that they, they got, <laughs> they successfully bid on like a hundred of these routes. And you had to make some sort of effort to actually deliver that mail. And that was not, um, it was a sweet scam, but you did kind of have to try to actually um, effectively deliver the mail. And that was not always easy. You had to find people. Um, so you had to further subcontract and find people to actually at least put on the appearance of trying to deliver the mail between two points. And so the bidding, it's its hard for us now. You know, everything is regimented and uniform and it's computerized and there's all sorts of oversight. You know, now there's an office of inspector general in the postal service. And we, right, if you can imagine the way this would work now, and actually there is a version of this that, that still continues to exist, but it, it, but this is at a time, right, where it's, it's not like that at all. It's very, very, the most kind of analog thing that you can imagine. And so it, it was great if you were corrupt and you wanted to engage in graft, it was a, just a gold mine. And that's why so many people were involved in it. Cause it was, I don't want to say it was free money, but it was about as close as, as close to free money as you could get in the 1870s. And that's why it was um, such a huge swindle. Some of the estimates. So it, it, it was so large and pervasive that, that no one really even knew how much money had been kind of stolen or misappropriated. And they sort of estimate one estimate that, I mean, the best estimate is that, you know, $40 million were misappropriated and that today that's over a billion dollars, right? So that's no small sum. Um, it just as a legal matter and as a criminal matter though it was really it sort of bedeviled the government as to sort of how to how to approach it just as like theoretically like how are we going to prosecute people and then who are we going to prosecute do we want to prosecute people who might be kind of in tune with our own political interest so a lot of the book i'm not really a political historian i don't think officially i can say that but a lot of the book just deals with sort of the politics of the era and how that got kind of tangled up in all of this. Right, right. So who decided who would get these star routes? And did the people bidding have to meet certain qualifications? 
No, there were no qualifications required. You just had to bid. And so the um, there was a, a position, the second assistant postmaster general had, this was within his purview at that time. So the second assistant postmaster general had great authority in terms of deciding, you know, who was who was qualified and who's not. There were kind of, there were some minimal qualifications. Like you had to, um, people had to sort of, you had to have guarantors who backed up, you know, your, your sort of financial solvency, but there were, so it was so easy to get around it. So really anybody who was just sort of cunning and organized enough could kind of get into the game. And again, that's why it was so widespread. It wasn't, you didn't need a license or some sort of professional qualification or anything like that at all. Um, it, but it, you needed to be connected um, and you needed to kind of be known to people within the post office. And if you were known to the second assistant postmaster general, that would help you sort of move forward. And so the person, there were multiple um the scandal kind of moves across across uh, presidential administrations. There are other people involved, but the, my, the the person that I write about most as second assistant postmaster general was a guy named Tom Brady, um, who was a pretty well connected Republican at the end of the 1870s. Especially the the trials that I write about happened in 1882 and 1883, and Brady was he was from Indiana and he it just had been connected to the Republicans in the way he was kind of a all around kind of Republican political operative. And he had helped the Republican campaign in 1876. There had been this contested um, much has happened, much has happened in 2000 with the election kind of hanging on Florida. The same thing happened in 1876 and Brady had gone down to Florida and had helped in various kind of shady ways um, secure Florida's electoral vote for uh, Rutherford Hayes, who won. So he was the person who you needed to be connected with in order. That was the biggest qualification, I think, was that did, did Tom Brady want to do business with you? Were there legitimate star root operators or was everyone in on the scam? Sure. There were some. And again, this is where it's hard to wrap your arms around all of it. And so I, I've thought about this. I was like, well, what percent, if I had to think of a, like a percentage of the roots that I thought were uh, corrupt, that would be really hard to say. But there were thousands of these roots. And there were people who did it uh, legitimately and, and got the mail delivered and weren't that weren't corrupt. I wouldn't say that everybody was corrupt, but there were just a small army of people out there bilking the government um, with the connivance of the government, right? They worked with people. The, the scam wouldn't have worked really if they couldn't have gotten these contracts adjusted by the post office. And so that's that kind of made it possible. They weren't just um, doing things on their own. We will be back after this brief break. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. So you mentioned Senator Stephen Dorsey. Could, could you talk more about him and his crime ring? How, how deep was he into this? Right. Dorsey is a really interesting character, kind of came out of like from central casting in terms of being a carpetbagger senator from Arkansas. He served a term that ended in 1878 um, in the Senate. He was just like a non-entity. He just wheeled and dealed and really didn't do a lot. But he wound up being very well connected within the Republican Party after he left, while he was in office. And then when he left office, he was became secretary of the Republican National Committee. And in the lead up to the election of 1880, where James Garfield, the Republicans were at war with each other. There were these two factions within the party. There was kind of the party regulars. They were the stalwarts and more reform-minded branch called the half-breeds. The Republicans were just, they couldn't figure out who they wanted to nominate for president. They Some people wanted Hayes or um, wanted President Grant to come back for a third term. They eventually settled. It was like the 36th ballot. They decided they, <laughs> they were tired. and They all decided they could live with Garfield who was sort of a mild reformer and Chester Arthur for vice president, who was a total party hack stalwart. And Dorsey was pretty influential in that 1880 election. The Garfield campaign wasn't that great. It wasn't well organized. And Indiana was this important swing state. The Republicans realized that they needed those electoral votes from Indiana and they sent Dorsey to Indiana with a satchel full of $2 bills. And uh, he worked in various the underhanded ways to help 
to help Garfield win Indiana in 1880. And as we know, Garfield won the, won the presidency. And so the Republicans felt that Dorsey had done them a great service in 1880. Not everybody really liked Stephen Dorsey, but like people realized that he was kind of a necessary evil for the party to the point where in the lead up to the inauguration of Garfield in 1881, uh, the Republicans threw a big party to thank Stephen Dorsey. It was at Delmonico's in New York City. It was like this testimonial dinner. Former President Grant got up, um, Vice President-elect Arthur got up and made a lot of jokes about how um, Dorsey had helped them steal the election in Indiana. So Dorsey is this, he's a, not, not quite in the inner circle, but he's adjacent to the inner circle with this incoming administration of uh, President-elect Garfield. But at, and at the same time, he is, uh, he has this side hustle uh, with a group of men where they're doing these star routes and they're engaged in this fraudulent bidding. And there were, uh, the, the ring included his brother, John Dorsey, a guy who was sort of his factotum or assistant named Montfort Rudel and others. And Dorsey was sort of the center of that. He was the hub of that wheel. He was kind of the center of gravity and this group of people that included then Tom Brady also. They needed the second assistant postmaster general to help them rig these bids. And so it, as a legal matter, and I I didn't want to get too far into the weeds with just like legal theory and like that no one, I don't know. There's, I don't think most people want to read about that, but the question became if this is a conspiracy involving the Dorsey ring uh, and the government eventually settled on identified 19 routes that they thought were just the most obviously fraudulent proving a conspiracy legally is actually kind of hard to do because you can't, just say that individuals talked about committing crimes. They had to take actions in furtherance of those crimes. They had to actually move forward and do something concrete. And that's hard because people don't typically openly say, hey, I know, let's guys, let's get together and commit a crime. Um, it doesn't really work like that. So that became um, the government eventually just couldn't it kind of couldn't not prosecute Dorsey and Brady and the rest of that ring. It had just become a public embarrassment to the Republican Party. It was in the newspapers all the time. Um, the New York Sun, which was a, a Democratic newspaper, had run a series of exposés about it. The New York Times ran articles about it. They kind of, as Garfield came into office in 1881, he... It, his hand was sort of forced. It was just sort of had been this lingering embarrassment. And Garfield was kind of ambivalent about it because he in some ways owed his election to Stephen Dorsey. And also Tom Brady had done great service to the party as well. But that became the problem was just that, that it had gone too far. Everybody knew about it. He Garfield couldn't not do something. So when he took office in 1881, this was it kind of landed in his lap and he had to deal with it. Yeah, you write that Tom Brady earned $3,500 annually in his postmaster general position, but by 1879, he was worth over $5 million. Right. <laughs> so one wonders how does, uh, 
And he, he had, you know, he had, he did the things that political operators do, you know, he was connected to people and made true investments and, but no one thought that Tom Brady was operating on the level and no one thought that Stephen Dorsey was operating on the level. And Stephen Dorsey also, he owned an enormous ranch uh, in New Mexico and had cattle and things like that. And it's just, you know, these public are and, and as is today, right? You look at members of Congress who have these lavish lifestyles, own lots of property and have incredible net wealth. And you, you can't help but wonder, okay, how does that, how does that wealth accumulate? So Stephen Dorsey and Tom Brady, yeah, they, they got a lot of that money through this, this, it's very classic kind of bid rigging scheme. And I, I thought back on this, like, as after I got into the book, I realized I kind of had grown up on bid rigging. Um, I grew up in Maryland in the 1970s and Maryland gave the world Spiro Agnew and Agnew was uh, very much when he was forced from office as vice president, it was because he had been involved in bid rigging in Maryland. Um, and as I was growing up uh, and then Agnew's successor as governor of Maryland was a guy named Marvin Mandel. There were political scandals. So I kind of grew up on uh, political scandals and bid rigging as a kid. That was sort of in the news, the Baltimore Sun, sort of every day I would read about that. And that's what this was. This was just sort of the 1870s and 1880s version of that, but writ large on a national level. So it was in every newspaper in the country at some point ran a story about this stuff. And when these trials happened in 1882 and 1883, they were the kinds of things, if they had happened today, it would be sort of like live coverage from CNN and the news ticker would be giving us updates on the star or the progress of the star root trial. Like that's how big, uh, that's how big it was. And I know sometimes historians come along and we we pluck obscure things out of nowhere and we try to puff them up as having been important. But at the time, this was this was no small thing. It was a huge deal. So Dorsey's in this uncomfortable position where he's performed some underhanded actions to help get Garfield elected. And now that Garfield is president, he has to go after Dorsey. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And so, and I think Dorsey believed that he was untouchable. And I, I, I might have thought that also, and he had been a a kind of a political intimate had developed a a kind of a political friendship with Garfield between the election and the inauguration. This was back when the inauguration happened in March, not in January. So there's this long gap between the, uh, the election and the inauguration. And he, Dorsey is like advising Garfield on cabinet appointments and is talking about various things. And is sh- also very trying to manipulate Garfield. There's a reformer named Tom James who winds up becoming the postmaster general. And uh, Dorsey, ostensibly for the good of the party and for the good of the country, sort of uh, doesn't recommend, uh, uh, talks Tom James down to to president, president-elect Garfield, but Garfield winds up appointing Tom James anyway. And so Dorsey very much believed that, and they had given him this 
testimonial dinner and, you know, Vice President Arthur had been at the testimonial dinner. And so I think he couldn't wrap his head around the idea that Garfield would do him wrong. And Garfield struggled with it. And Garfield knew also that um, Stephen Dorsey was a political fighter. He knew that you know, he had lots of correspondence with Stephen Dorsey that was kind of where they had talked about political scheming and willing and dealing. And he Garfield knew that if he went after Stephen Dorsey, Stephen Dorsey would release some of this correspondence to the press, which in fact Dorsey wound up doing. But to his credit, I, in writing this book, you know, Garfield is an interesting figure because he's he was wasn't president for very long. He he was inaugurated in March of eighteen eighty one, and then was he was shot in July of eighteen eighty one, and then passed away in September. So he wasn't president for very long, and he's mainly remembered just for having been assassinated. But in this studying his approach to this, you know, he easily could have just continued to have swept this scandal under the rug. He was just coming in as president. His party was really at war with itself. It's interesting. Oftentimes we think about, you know, oh, he must have been really worried about what the Democrats were doing and, you know, this uh, inter-party conflict. Heck no, it was intra-party conflict within the these two factions within the the stalwarts and the half-breeds. And he, he could have said, you know what, I got other fish to fry. I think we're going to just <laughs> ride this out for a while and see what happens. And to Garfield's credit, he, um, his attorney general was a guy named Wayne McVeigh. Tom James was the postmaster general. And they came to him and they said, look, I, you need to do something about the starward thing. It's kind of out of control. And Garfield did the right thing. And he, at one point said, um, we need to probe the ulcer to the bottom and take it out. Um, and, and let the chips fall where they may, but do a, do a thorough investigation. And, and that it was very imperfect. The way the government did it is very much open to, to criticism, but Garfield himself probably is above reproach in how he dealt with this. And in fact, he appointed a special prosecutor, which had only happened one once before during the whiskey ring scandal. Uh, under President Grant. So he really went out of his way to deal with this thing within his own party. And that's to his credit. I think that one of the, one of the things we could talk about this more, there are those who argued at the time and believed at the time that actually his assassination was connected to his decision to go after the Dorsey ring and the star route fraudsters. And that's something in the book that I think really has it. The scandal itself, no one has really written about, but definitely no one has really written about the connection, but the possible connections between the Starroot scandal and uh, Garfield's assassination in, later in 1881. So for me, that was really, this is a, tr- uh, a true crime story with a bunch of different levels to it. And that's that's another piece of this puzzle was just Garfield's death. Uh, what evidence exists to suggest that his assassin? Yeah. So, um, Garfield was assassinated by a guy named uh, Charles Jouteau, and Jouteau was um, that clearly had mental illness. Um, and when Jouteau shot Garfield, it was in a railroad depot in Washington D.C. He said. 
uh, I am a stalwart of stalwarts. Now Arthur is president. And, and Juteau had really been inflamed by the media coverage of this intraparty squabbling among the Republicans. And when he was apprehended after shooting Garfield, he had in his pockets it's like 40 newspaper clippings, all these anti-Garfield newspaper clippings, including, as I mentioned, <laughs> clippings from Tom Brady's newspaper in Washington, D.C., the National Republican. And so when he was asked at Juteau's eventual trial, he was asked, you know, well, why did you, why did you do it? Um, he said, well, a God inspired, I was inspired by the divine, but the newspapers confirmed the inf- in- confirmed the inspiration. So he had been inflamed by the news media early in 1881. And a big part of that negative Garfield coverage in places like the National Republican and the New York Herald was the Star Root scandal. So the, the, the public, the very toxic public discourse about the Star Root scandal was part of kind of what got into Juteau's brain and drove him. There were lots of articles talking about how Garfield should be, you know, removed. And Juteau just took that literally and said, yeah, I, I took the action to remove him. And more directly, so there was a special prosecutor who was appointed, um, a guy named William Cook. And William Cook had his own, uh, one of the funnier things in the book was Cook was appointed a special prosecutor in the spring of 1881. And lots of people kind of like, were aghast that William Cook would have been appointed special prosecutor because he was kind of known as the shady lowlife attorney. And they asked Wayne McVeigh, who was the attorney general, why did you appoint William Cook of all people? And he said, well, it's upon the theory that it takes a thief to catch a thief, um, that his underworld associations would actually be helpful. And in fact, I think uh, Garfield was shot on a Saturday and he met with Cook on a, the preceding Wednesday to talk about the Starwood case in the White House. And in the White House, Cook said, Mr. President, I, I just have to tell you that I think that maybe your life is in danger. I'm just hearing the word on the street is that maybe something bad is going to happen to you. And, you know, people are kind of worked up about various things, including the Starwood scandal. You know, I think you should watch your step. And Garfield brushed that aside and said, well, you know, thank you, but, you know, I'll be fine. And then, lo and behold, Garfield was, was shot by Juteau. Lots of people at the time believed that there was a direct connection between the Starroot criminals and Juteau. The Starroot criminals, if anybody had a reason to assassinate Garfield, right, it was these people who were under investigation by the Garfield administration. Um, Juteau's sister eventually wrote a book um, with kind of a thinly veiled novelization of her brother's life. But in it, she directly said that she thought that the star root criminals had gotten to her brother and had kind of manipulated her brother into killing Garfield. There was a congressional investigation, I think in 1883 or 1884, where this came up and a bunch of people got up and said, yeah, there was something there was something going on relating to the Starwood scandal and Juteau and these things were connected. I, I don't know. I wouldn't go quite that far to say that Juteau conspired directly with people, 
But the Starwood scandal was just part of this atmosphere of I just hate and the, the kind of toxic, the toxicity of political discourse that clearly drove Juteau to kill Garfield was driven by the Starroot scandal and was driven by people like Tom Brady. Tom Brady's newspaper was front and center in terms of getting people whipped up against Garfield. And Juteau just took that too far. It wasn't a rhetorical attack by Juteau. It was a literal attack by Juteau. And the fact that he, you know, said, hurrah, basically, hooray, now Arthur, the stalwart is president, like led lots of people to believe that there was a very direct uh, connection between these things. I don't know that there's necessarily direct evidence of that, but it's fun to look at. It's interesting to look at the assassination and its connection to the case. And I don't think anybody has really done that before because I just don't think it's been, uh, nobody has really looked into the Starroot stuff very much. Interesting. So many believed that with Garfield's death, Chester Arthur might be more lenient towards guys like Dorsey and Brady. But to his credit, he, he pushed on, supporting the investigations and the prosecutions. Yeah, and it, it, it's, surpri- in retrospect, kind of surprising. I mean, Arthur was the poster child of party regulars. He was part of the... Um, had been part of the Conkling political machine in New York City. And if anybody was just going to sweep something under the rug, it was probably going to be Arthur. But Arthur realized upon taking the presidency, like, no, not very many people really wanted Arthur to be president. People didn't think that he was up for it. And he realized, I think, correctly, that if he wanted to be nominated if he wanted to run for president in his own right in 1884 and if he wanted the republican party to survive they were going to have to do something about corruption um this was the democrats just hammered the republicans over and over again there had been a ton of scandals during the grant administration scandals during the hayes administration and i think arthur knew he was on shaky ground upon taking office and he couldn't kind of put the kibosh on the prosecution. So it actually, he allows it to move forward. And again, the government's team is kind of at war with itself. One of the subplots in the book is the government's lawyers. Um, It's just this viper's nest of people who don't trust each other, who believe that they're selling out to the other side and them it's a complicated case to begin with. It has all of these political implications and they can't quite agree on how they should approach it. So they make some sloppy mistakes along the way. Um, They wind up putting on cases in court that are overly complicated and hard for um, jurors to figure out. But Arthur, Arthur, yeah, can't really be faulted too much because he he allowed the, uh, the the prosecution could have just died a quiet death that everybody was sort of distracted by the Garfield assassination and all these other things. And he, I, I think he did the right thing. And he also did something that I think served him politically. It, in the end, it didn't really serve him 
politically that well. It didn't serve the Republicans that well because um, they got clobbered in the um, 1882 off-year elections and then wound up losing the presidency in 1884. But Arthur, surprisingly, so he was a stalwart. He's a party hack. He surprisingly lets the prosecution go forward and says some things about civil service reform and, and signs of civil service law in uh, early 1883. So it, it's... he. He also, to his credit, quits himself pretty well. One of the more important moments in this case is when that that clerk you mentioned earlier, um, Montford Rudell, comes forward with a damning story, right? Right. And the government, um, I I think that they realized that they needed someone within this alleged conspiracy to kind of talk it's much easier and straightforward to you know when you have someone within this conspiracy you know admitting to there being a conspiracy so and Rudolph was interesting because he and he was like the perfect person for the government he was like the bookkeeper he was Dorsey's personal factotum kind of personal assistant you know he knew all of the comings and goings he knew the finances and he does come forward and, and basically gives the government an affidavit in which he says, yep, it's as you suspected, uh, we were involved in these frauds. This is how the frauds work. This is how the, um, the kickbacks worked. There were other, <laughs> other kind of side crimes involved where they, you know, people had to, um, there was a thing that Brutal called the Congressional Corruption Fund, actually, where they they wanted money in order to be able to buy votes, to increase postal funding, all sorts of stuff. It's like just perfect for the government. They get this from him. Um, and then he recants that confession, basically, after being worked over, basically, by Dorsey. Brutal goes back and he says, well, actually, no, I, I take it all back. My affidavit is, uh, I, I was given under duress and it was uh, the government suborned perjury and all this stuff. And eventually he, he then goes back again and unrecants, I guess you could say. But at that point had lost all credibility in the second trial. They, the government attempts to kind of res- resurrect this affidavit and, and get Rurtle to kind of reconfess. And by that point, Nobody believes anything that he's saying. I do think that his original confession was accurate and true. And it just has this ring of uh, authenticity about it. But that was that inside look that the government really needed because there isn't like correspondence necessarily where, you know, Dorsey isn't writing memoranda that say, hey, team, let's go out and steal a bunch of the government's money. You needed Rudolph. To say, yeah, we kept, so for instance, they kept two sets of books. One was the real set of books that, you know, uh, tracked the coming and going of all this money. And then there was a fake set of books. So in case the government ever came in and looked, they would have that doctored set of books to hand over. So he really provided that. And it was just, as was typical of the case, things kind of, I don't know, kind of went in and out of focus and, 
Uh, it was really hard. It was, um, it was a little bit like nailing jelly to the wall for the government. They couldn't quite figure out. Everybody knew that this, these crimes had been committed. Everybody knew that a conspiracy uh, had taken place, but just pointing to the point where it's sort of like walking through the fog, you never quite, you know, that you know that there's fog, but you never quite actually get to the fog. Um, that sort of way the government wasn't it. And it, they narrowed it down when they put the, the, the Dorsey ring on trial, they narrowed it down to 19 uh, fraudulent routes, but just the way they put on their case was way too complicated and boring. And the jurors, the jury was uh, corrupted. There was bribery that had happened, but lots of people said even, even a legitimate jury uh, would have struggled with the government's case because it was just, so mind numbing. They didn't really, um, they just got lost in the minutia. They got in the, lost in the minutia of the case. And I, I wanted to, that was kind of a cautionary tale for me as a writer to not get lost in the minutia myself, because it would have been really easy to go through all of these routes and every little, you know, nook and cranny. And I, I kind of wanted to provide enough detail to explain what had happened, but also to just keep the, keep the ball moving down the field a little bit in terms of the narrative and the story. And there's tons of really interesting personalities. You know, Dorsey was a great personality. Brady was a great personality. One of the defense attorneys was a guy named Robert Green Ingersoll was a famous uh, orator and free thinker. There are tons of people like that. And for me as a writer and as a reader, I really like that stuff. I like the little side nuggets, right? That kind of add some color to the story. And that's, it's one of the things it's, it's hard. I think writing, a lot of writing is just about organizing. It's not necessarily, I, I'd like to think I write okay sentences, but the sentences are this, uh, just at the smallest level. There's this macro way that you kind of have to put things together. And so for me, I really like that a lot. Several of my books have been kind of complicated stories. And I, for me, putting that puzzle together was one of the really fun things. And putting it together in a way that was, was readable, you know, and is worth people's time and money. Uh, and also answers that kind of so what questions like why should you care about this this scandal? No one else has talked about the scandal for a hundred years. You know why should we start talking about it now? And I think I tried to do that in talking about the significance of the scandal and just pivoting how civil service reform eventually kind of became a thing. And there's a direct line between the Star Root scandal and civil service reform which really started in 1883 with this Pendleton Civil Service Act, and then things like the Progressive Era and good government. And so you can look at that period, uh, that this kind of corrupt period in American uh, government, the Garfield administration, the Hayes administration, or the, the Grant administration, the Hayes administration, and then into uh, Garfield and Arthur. But you can look at the Star Wars scandal is like the end of that. It was kind of like the last straw. And so there's, uh, we all know that we still have corruption. We still have bad government, but the Star Wars scandal really is that it's the, it is the twilight of that era. 
And that's one of the things I wanted to get at in talking about it and sort of and answering that, like, why does it matter question that's always important. Right. Were, were Dorsey or Brady punished for what they had done? Well, it depends on what you mean by punished. So legally speaking, no. Um, so there are two trials. The first trial ends in sort of this mixed hung jury. A couple people are convicted. A couple people aren't convicted. Uh, so Wordle, interestingly, is convicted in the first trial. And the, the basically that verdict is set aside because the, the, and the government agreed that you couldn't convict the lowest person in the conspiracy. If the, if the conspiracy was being directed by Dorsey, you couldn't find Dorsey not guilty and find other people guilty. So there's a retrial and um, there are acquittals. So as a legal matter, Dorsey and Brady and everybody else get off scot-free. In the court of public opinion, though, they are really publicly shamed and kind of ruined in terms of their reputations. It's just, even though the, the trials themselves didn't go well, there's no, you know, dramatic, you know, moment of total justice where, you know, the, the judge bangs his gavel and they get hauled off to jail. Just this steady grind of negative publicity that really for Dorsey starts in about I don't know, 1879 and goes through 1883, every paper in the country is saying that Dorsey is a crook. Every newspaper in the country is saying that Brady is a crook. So their reputations don't, don't ever really recover. And they're kind of out of public life after that, which is another thing that, to, you know, we, there is this idea of total justice. Lawrence Friedman, the legal historian, talks about this our quest for total justice. We want the perfect ending where you know people are jailed for what they do and they have to um, compensate the government, give money back and do all these things. That is not something that happens. It's not neat and tidy in that way. But they are you know, really publicly shamed and the government does realize that reform needs to happen. And so when this Pendleton Civil Service Act comes into being early in 1883, that's President Arthur says, we have to stop things like the Starwood scandal. We need civil service reform. And so there is a good result as a, a ma- like a black and white matter of crime and punishment. Uh, the result, result isn't that dramatic, but if you look at the big picture, the result is pretty important. Well, excellent. So your book has, has only recently been published. It came out in mid-March, correct? Yep, it is. Yeah, so um, it's out there um, wherever you buy books, hopefully a independent book retailer, but anywhere where you feel like uh, you can find stuff. So you can get it directly from LSU also. Awesome. Well, well, thank you again. No, always my pleasure, Eric. You know, the next time, you know, we're uh, two for two with my last couple of books. So I'll just, whenever, whenever I figure out what my next book is going to be, you know, we can, uh, we can do it again. Sounds great. I'd like that. 
Again, I have been speaking to Sean Francis Peters. His book is called When Bad Men Combine, The Star Root Scandal and the Twilight of Gilded Age Politics. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.